you're probably expecting that we'd be in Nehemiah today, but uh, I decided before we move, we head to the book of Nehemiah, I'd like to speak on a topic which when you're preaching through books of the Bible, you rarely get the opportunity to speak about. Um, This happens to be one of only a a handful of passages where this topic, uh, vitally important topic, comes up, and that is, like, how do I choose the right person to marry? You'd think that a question of such significance would get quite a bit of airtime in the Bible, but in, in fact, it doesn't. You know, how do I choose a spouse? Clearly, it's a, a relevant issue if you're a single, maybe a single, older single, college student. One day, it's going to be a relevant question for those of you who are teenagers. My hope is that in this sermon, even if you've been happily married for, what, 40, 40 plus years, there would at least be somebody whom you know, a friend, a child, whom you could recommend the sermon to, and it would be you know, helpful for them to hear. So it is a topical sermon. I'm taking it from Ezra 10, 1 through 9, <clears throat> where we read God's word. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now, let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up, this matter is in your hands. We will support you, so take courage and do it. So Ezra rose up and he put the leading priests and Levites and all Israel under an oath to do what had been suggested. And they took the oath. And then Ezra withdrew from them before the house of God and went to the room of Jehoahan, son of Eliashib. While he was there, he ate no food and drank no water because he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. A proclamation was then issued throughout Judah and Jerusalem for all the exiles to assemble in Jerusalem. Anyone who failed to appear within three days would forfeit all his property in accordance with the decision of the officials and the elders and would himself be expelled from the assembly of the exiles. Within the three days, all the men of Judah and Benjamin had gathered in Jerusalem. And on the 20th day of the ninth month, all the people were sitting in the square before the house of God, greatly distressed by the occasion and because of the rain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we do love, we love you, we love your words, we love what you have to speak to us, even words such as these that are 2,400 years old, um, they are our treasure. So please, uh, give me skill to speak clearly, and to those who listen, give them tender hearts, that we might become people of wisdom and people of conviction, people who, uh, who really want to be loyal to the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, and God's people said, amen. So, in 1960, the median age for women to marry was 20 years old, and men, the median age was 23. Erin and I were happened to be talking about this when we were on a walk earlier in the week. Uh, her grandmother, so her grandmother, this would have been probably the 40s, she married at the age of 16, and was, had their first, 
first child at the age of 18. And, and you know, some of you, you have similar stories with your grandmother or great-grandmother. Today, things are very different, of course. The median age for women uh, to first marry is 27. Uh, the median age for men is 29. There are many reasons why young adults are delaying marriage. The humorist John Tierney, I don't know if you ever read him before, he, he tried to explain this phenomenon in a funny article posted in the New York Magazine. This was about 30 years ago. The article is titled, Picky, Picky, Picky. <laughs> As he recounts many of the reasons his single New York socialite friends told him they had given up on their recent relationships. The list that they provided him included, well, she mispronounced Goethe, Goeth. <laughs> or... Sure, he's a partner in the law firm, but it's not a big firm, and he wears those short black socks. Well, it started out great. Beautiful face, great body, nice smile. Everything was going fine until she turned around. He paused ominously and shook his head. She had dirty elbows. (laughs) After scanning the extraordinarily unrealistic personal ads in the newspaper where the kind of partners everybody wanted almost never really existed, Tierney decided that young adults were increasingly afflicted with what he called the flaw-o-matic, an inner voice, a little whirring device inside the brain that instantly spots a fatal flaw in any potential mate. Yes, these New Yorkers all sounded like victims of their own flaw-matics, although none of them would admit to having one. No one ever does. Yeah, during my years living alone, I always knew that my, my own requirements in a woman were perfectly reasonable. All I wanted was a, a nice novelist astronaut with a background in fashion modeling. <laughs> But I could see others needed help. <laughs> Fair point, humorously made, or hopefully you found it humorous. But many of us begin our search for a spouse with these like, comically, almost comically impossible expectations for finding Mr. and Mrs. Wright. How does the Bible direct us? What does the Bible say directly to us on the matter? Well, you may be surprised to hear there's no specific teaching anywhere in the Bible other than a single command that is given by Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, 9. A very simple command. I mean, it's like black and white, short and to the point. Anybody know what it is? Believers must, the phrase he uses is marry in the Lord. You know, genuine Christians are commanded, they, they must like, it's the height of disloyalty if they don't marry fellow genuine believers. Now, nowadays, many argue that the key to a happy marriage is personal compatibility, uh, compatible personalities. I'll admit that uh, every time during premarital counseling sessions, one of the first activities I give, give uh, couples is I give them a Myers-Briggs personality test. I give them a DISC personality test. I, you know, I want to see how well they fit together. And there's nothing wrong with that information per se. But as long as we realize that like, the one non-negotiable is not personality mesh. Like, you have to marry someone. You must marry somebody who lives and breathes Jesus. And if you don't, the Bible warns over and over again that it will be a deep, deep sorrow. To, like a, The deepest sorrow of your life. And not only that, it'll be a snare. It'll be a snare to your soul. Listen for a moment again to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.14, where he writes these words, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, 
For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What, what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement, so all these rhetorical questions in a row, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Now granted, Paul is, he is not, I admit, he's not talking directly here about marriage. He's talking about the issue of idolatry. Uh, the people in Corinth would customarily offer sacrifices to foreign gods, and it was, very, it was a very hard thing for the Christians to separate themselves from this practice because it was just such a norm of the culture. Just like we might give thanks before we have a, a meal uh, in the evening, well, they would customarily you know, offer some type of libation or sacrifice to a patron deity. So you're at your friend's house for dinner, uh, you know, it's just very easy to go along with the host who offers this libation or prayer to some, some uh, you know, false god. Or you might be part of a trade guild, a trade union, and there would be a patron saint of carpenters. And very regularly, they would offer some kind of, you know, sacrifice to that god. And to step away from that practice, uh, it was very uncouth and it was very unwelcome, as you might imagine. But here God urges you the simple truth that you are set apart. Like if you are in Christ, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And just as you would not dare put a pagan idol in the temple of God, so you should not take your body and join it with idolatry or with any idolatrous practices. And he uses that uh, famous image of, of being yoked together. You know, we've all seen, if we've never seen in person, we've seen pictures of an animal yoke, not an egg yoke, but a Y-O-K-E, you know. Um, and yokes back in the day, they used to be either metal or wooden. I think increasingly they're leather right now. But if you want to take a team of animals and, and get anywhere with them, you would pair them together so they, and you put the yoke over their shoulders so they can plow the field in the same time and in the same direction. Uh, I mean, what happens if you decide to harvest your field and you grab a mule and a pig? It, it, you're not going to get anywhere. Um, what happens if you pick up an ox and a donkey? The, the poor donkey is going to be like drug along. <laughs> you don't yoke secretariat to a Shetland pony. You need two animals of similar stature and strength moving in the same direction. So while this passage isn't directly about marriage, it's about idolatry, you know, down through the ages, Christian interpreters have all said, like, this, this clearly applies uh, to marriage. I want you to think about this. A Christian and non-Christian, they may truly love each other. They may. And they may truly love, like, a lot of the same things together but they cannot truly love the same ultimate thing. And the end of their lives cannot be the same ultimate end, goal, right? Like one person loves God, hopefully loves God with all their heart, soul, and mind and strength. The other person, if you read the Bible carefully, says that like in our unconverted state, we hate God. Like we're opposed to God. We're enemies of God. Um, one person, they're going to two different destinations. One is going to heaven, tragically, the other is going to hell. There's a chasm of difference. He says, you must not be unequally yoked. Kathy Keller wrote a great article several years back entitled, Don't Take It From Me, Reasons You Should Not Marry an Unbeliever. You can look it up on the internet and read it in its entirety. She writes very insightfully that there are three, there's basically three outcomes that can come 
that, that can result from an unequal marriage. And, and just remember, before I read these, that there is, no, there is no more profound union in life than there is between a husband and a wife. There, there is nowhere where we share more of ourselves or depend on the other person more than a husband being joined to a wife for the rest of their lives. So just here are the three ways it can go. Number one, in order to be more in sync with your spouse, the Christian will have to push Christ to the margins of his or her life. Now, this may not involve actually repudiating the faith, but in all kinds of practical matters, such as devotional life, hospitality to other believers, like hosting small groups, uh, emergency, emergency hosting of people in need, missionary support, tithing, raising children in the faith, fellowship with other believers, those things will necessarily have to be minimized or avoided in order pr- to preserve peace in the home. It will. Alternatively, number two, if the believer in the marriage really does hold to a robust Christian life and practice, consequently, the non-believing spouse will be pushed to the margins of the marriage. They will be marginalized. I mean, if he or she can't understand the point of Bible study and prayer, missions trips and hospitality and tithing and serving in the church, then he or she can't and won't participate alongside the believing spouse in those activities. The deep oneness and unity of a marriage, they, it cannot flourish when one per- person cannot fully participate in the other person's most important commitments. I think that's obvious. And so number three, either the marriage experiences stress and breaks up, or it experiences stress and stays together, achieving some kind of truce that involves one spouse or the other capitulating in some areas, but which leaves both parties feeling lonely and unhappy. If you think If you think you're lonely before marriage, it's nothing compared to how lonely you can be after marriage. Yeah, so she says, right, one, Christ is pushed to the margins. Two, your spouse is pushed to the margins. Three, you reach this unhappy truce. The Kellers then, you know, later wrote a book, um, Meaning of Marriage, which is really good, and I'll quote from it a little, again in just a minute, but uh, I think it's the chapter that Tim is expanding on this idea, and not to pile on, but I think it's, a, it's just important to, um, I mean, to really flesh this out. He says, in the normal, healthy Christian life, you should be relating Christ and the gospel to everything in your life, right? You, you will think of Christ when you're watching the movie. You will, you will base decisions on Christian principles. You will think about what you read in the Bible that day. But if you are natural and transparent about all those thoughts with your partner is, is at the least going to find it tedious or annoying or even offensive. Uh, he or she might even say, I had no idea you were this overboard about your faith. So you'll have to hide it all. And when you have to hide it all, you have, you have squashed transparency. And, and transparency, as we all know, is vital to, to, to friendship. Like you cannot have a spiritual friendship. Or the other worst possibility is that you move Christ out of a central place in your consciousness. You'll have to let your heart's fire for Christ cool. You will have to deliberately not think out how your Christian commitment relates to every area of your life. You will have to demote Christ in your mind and heart because if you keep him central, you will feel isolated from your spouse. Does that make sense? Well, that's a lot. Um, I know somebody can very legitimately say, say to me, um, like, Brad, you have no idea how much 
like how deeply we are in love. Or you have no idea like how painful it would be, how just crushing it would be to us to break this off, I mean, like a non, non-Christian Christian marriage. I do, I think I get it. <laughs> I, I mean, most of us enter into marriage through, through what we call an in-love experience. I mean, why is it that we use the expression, I've fallen in love, like fallen, like woo, I, I hit the ground. I'm on the ground and I can't get up. We've fallen in love. Like, like the in-love experience is euphoric. It's a constant dopamine hit. It's Woo! <laughs> and two people can be almost obsessed with each other when they are in love. What I am saying is, is like no matter how strong your feelings are or how great your fears are about what might happen if you break it off, they never justify doing what you're about to do. Um, and they will never pay off in the long run. And you, and, you know, you just have to trust me on that. It's true. I want you to look back with me at the passage. Let's go back to verse 1 briefly. I just want you to note Ezra's reaction when he finds out that a large number of Jews have married foreign women. That's what happened when they got back to Jerusalem. It says that, well, he was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God. Uh, A large group of people gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. I think earlier, the previous chapter wasn't the one where it says that he tore his clothes and, and he... He pulled his hair out of his head and he plucked his beard. I mean, the guy is utterly devastated. He is devastated by this news. Why do you think he's so devastated? The answer, I really think the major answer is, it's for the children's sake. Like he knows, he has every bit to be as dejected and humiliated because he knows if this mixed marriage in Israel, if, it is, if Israel is a nation of mixed marriages, then the faith will undoubtedly die. The faith will not be passed on to the children. Second generation will begin to uh, fall away. Third generation, it'll, be, it'll vanish entirely. Like Israel will not be Israel because you can't, it is extremely difficult to pay, pass on the faith in a situation like that. Well, that brings up another thorny question about modern marriage. I just said the C word, right? Uh, children? Like, wh- whoever said I wanted children? <laughs> the median age of the first-time mother in America today is 30. Um, and that's taking into account, note, uh, all the teenage pregnancies in America. Median age is 30. You know, basically, the modern view of marriage, you know this to be true, is that basically children are optional. If, if children are going to come, let's make sure they come whenever it's like convenient to my career and reputation. I've got another long quote. I hope you'll... <clears throat> I hope you'll stick with it because it, it, it speaks about how, how like, the Christian view of marriage shifted in the 18th century. Stick with it. Christianity always taught that the purpose of marriage was to create a framework for lifelong devotion and love between a husband and wife, a solemn bond designed to help each party subordinate individual impulses and, and interests in favor of that relationship, to be a sacrament of God's love, at least that's the Roman Catholic um, emphasis, or to serve the common good, which is the Protestant emphasis. Protestants understood marriage to be given by God not merely 
to Christians, but to benefit the entirety of humanity. Marriage created character by bringing male and female into a binding partnership. In particular, lifelong marriage was seen as creating the only kind of social stability in which children could grow and thrive. The reason that all of society had a vested interest in the institution of marriage was because children could not flourish as well in any other kind of environment. It was only until the Enlightenment, like early 18th century, things began to shift, where the meaning of life came to be seen as primarily the freedom of the individual to choose whatever life most fulfills him or her personally. So instead of finding meaning through self-denial, through giving up of one's freedoms, through the binding of oneself to the duties of marriage and family, marriage was redefined as finding, primarily as finding emotional and sexual fulfillment and self-actualization in another spouse. Now, proponents of this new approach certainly didn't see the essence of marriage, either in the Roman Catholic sacramental symbolism or the Protestant view of a benefit for, um, for, for all of um, society. In this view, married persons married for themselves, not to fulfill responsibilities to God or to community. Parties should, therefore, be allowed to conduct their marriage in any way they deemed beneficial to them, and no obligation was expected to church, tradition, broader community. In short, the Enlightenment privatized marriage, taking it out of the public sphere and redefined its purpose as individual gratification, not any broader good such as reflecting God's, char- God's nature, producing character in the individuals, or raising children. Slowly but surely, this new understanding of, of marriage, well, what? It's, it's, today's, it's today's view of marriage, right? That I just described exactly what people think of marriage today. Uh, to summarize, kids, marriage, if it works for you, if you want them, whenever you want them, um, but it's, not, it's no longer seen as like a, an essential part of what marriage is. And this post-enlightenment view of marriage is clearly reflected in, in the, the global fertility rates and, and how in the Western world, you know, our fertility rates are just, they plummeted, right? America and Europe are dying civilizations because we don't have enough kids to, to replenish us. Uh, it was interesting because missiologist Philip Jenkins has argued that the future of world Christianity is African, primarily because Africans have kids. Primarily because African Christians have kids, and um, primarily because, you know, the greatest, the, the greatest way the Great Commission has spread across this world has been Christian parents having kids and raising the kids in the faith. Like, that's the majority of Christians who have ever existed in the world have come through that process. Um, and so while we might say it's somebody else's problem, it's really not. It is, our, it is a societal problem, and it is, it is a holy Catholic church problem. It's a Christianity problem. And we all probably know, you know, what's the um, religion that is populating the fastest right now? Islam. Okay, I don't want to get sidetracked. I know I, I probably have gotten sidetracked in that. I'm, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not telling you how many kids you should have or when you should have kids or specific views on birth control. Um, what I'm saying, what I'm really saying is, is that if you marry somebody who's not a Christian, it, it will have it will have a seismic effect on your ability to pass on your faith to your kids. Um, 
Basically, you're saying that I am willing for my kids to receive mixed messages on the fundamental issues of life for the rest of their lives. And what you are doing is you're putting your children at monumental spiritual risk. And so for those of you who say, I don't want children um, to you, I say, someday you will. Someday you will. And your kids will, will mean more to you than life itself. And you will do absolutely anything to, to, to see to it that they, they flourish and thrive. Nothing, nothing will matter more to you than sharing in the resurrection and life of Jesus Christ with them. And so you, I mean, it, you want to do everything in your power uh, to see to it that they're, they're best taken, taken care of spiritually. You must marry in the Lord for your children and your grandchildren's sake. My favorite book on marriage, the one I require all my premarital couples to read, is, is The Meaning of Marriage by the Kellers. There's a lot of uh, practical and deeply theological insights into marriage. I just, I, I want you to marry somebody who lives and breathes Jesus. Notice I said, not somebody who merely claims to be a Christian, but I want you to marry somebody whose faith is evidenced like, by everybody in your circle of relationships, whose faith is like plainly evidenced to your parents when they see them, to your friends when they see them, a person who is genuinely being transformed into greater measure into the image of Jesus Christ, which is the Christian goal, is it not? Uh, I love how they put it this way. They say, within this Christian vision for marriage, here's what it means to fall in love. So they're redefining the in-love process. It is to look at another person and get a glimpse of the person God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you in Christ and it excites me. And I want to be part of that. Now, I want to partner with you and God in the journey that you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it on earth. And now look at you. Each spouse should see the great thing that Jesus is doing in the life of their mate through the word, through the gospel. Uh, Each spouse should then give himself or herself to be a vehicle for that work and envision the day that you will stand before God seeing each other presented in spotless beauty and glory. My wife, Kathy, often says that most that, that for most people, when they're looking for a spouse, they're looking for a finished statue when they should be looking for a wonderful block of marble. You know, not so that you can create the kind of person you want, but rather because you see what kind of person Jesus is making. Like when Michelangelo asked how he carved his magnificent David, his reply is reputed to have been, I looked inside the marble and just took away the bits that weren't David. And when looking for a marriage partner, each must be able to look inside the other and see what God is doing and be excited about being part of the process of liberating the emerging, like, new you, new creation in Christ. Isn't that a great way to say it? So good. I mean, going back to the concept of equally yoked, um, I'll say that the closer agreement you can have theologically, uh, the, generally the better. I mean, marriage is not like a university seminar where the aim is to have a wide diversity of viewpoints. Uh, you guys can have a wide View, uh, diversity of viewpoints on what foods you like and what music you listen to and what movies you, you see. And, you know, all of that can be the spice of life. But, like, the more agreement you have about the faith, uh, the better you are. Because, I mean, it's, like, it's the old adage of being in a boat, and a rowboat, and you're, you're both rowing the same oar strokes, and you're both going the same direction. It, it, it makes life a whole lot easier. 
Um, I just have a few like smattering of practical things to end with. The first, I'll say to all of us as a church, we, it's hard being single. It really is. We know that. I hope you know that. And we should sympathize with Christian singles who really want to be married. We should, like, we should sympathize that there is such a dearth of like great Christian guys out there. There really is in, in the church. Um, not to say there aren't some in this church, but, but there really is. We should sympathize with them, but we should never do it in such a way that encourages them to make unbiblical decisions about marriage. Like, I think well-meaning people have a tendency, we want to play matchmaker. We want, we, and we see a couple that's, that's truly in love, and we see how happy she is, or how happy he is, and we just want that, I mean, we're happy by that too. We want that to, but we should never encourage them to lower their Christian standards, we should never do that. Um, and we should never make singleness as though it's like the worst thing in the world because we all know it's not. Like, if anything, the worst thing in the world is being in an unhappy marriage. And so uh, let's not pressure them to find somebody. Let's not be mis- matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a wish that. I mean, let's, let's just pray for them and encourage them and, and encourage them to truly marry in the Lord. Secondly, those of you who are dating age, um, like hopefully you got part of the part of the principle of this sermon was don't do missionary dating. <laughs> uh, I know it has worked before. I know that there are some people in our church who, by God's grace, they they are both happily um, mature Christian, strong believers today. But I love how Kevin DeYoung put it. He said that the ends never justify the means. I mean, after all. Uh, you know, selling Joseph into slavery ended up being pretty good for everybody. But that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, how can we help starving nations? Well, just find a boy with a colorful shirt and throw him in a well. You know, the, the ends never justify the means. You know, God forbids you to date someone who is not a genuine believer. And, and if you do, you're just, you're just asking the devil to tempt you. I mean, what is it we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Lead me not into temptation. It also means that you should not be leading yourself into temptation. I mean, emotions and hormones are powerful things. And when we fall into romantic love, we are liable to convince ourselves of anything. Uh, you'll convince yourself that he's not that bad. You'll convince yourself that, oh, she's, she's probably a Christian. You'll convince yourself that sex before marriage is fine. What you need to convince yourself is that God really loves you and he really does have a wonderful plan for your life and please don't screw it up by not listening to his instructions his his instructions are there for your good because he loves you i would say also to you that a, a great a good a good rule of thumb is ask your parents what they think of the person you're interested in dating look if an absolutely handsome man with lots of money who loves Christ fervently and is head over heels in love for you, comes along and asks you to marry him, your parents are not going to say no. (laughs) But if someone of doubtful spiritual commitment with doubtful prospects spiritually as a husband or a father comes along, um, your parents are going to be able to see that more clearly than you can. Um, They're in a far better position to see. God actually put them in your life. Part of the reason was so they would see those things and help you. And, and make no mistake about it, there is not, there is not a Christian parent in this field who, who would not literally have their arm cut off, 
have their eye plucked out, have their leg cut off in order to see you have a happy, like God-glorifying, Christ-centered marriage. There's not a single one of us. Is there? Is there a single parent here who, I mean, would not be amputated for the sake of their kid in that way? No, because we love you so much. And we know that, that this one thing is so vital for you fulfilling your purpose uh, in your life and, and living a truly satisfying one. Uh, I think this is my third last practical. What am I at? I'm only at 30 minutes. I wore a wristwatch today. Can you believe that? If you're a Christian person and you're married to a non-Christian person, um, hard sermon to hear. I know. Uh, this is not, the sermon is not meant to make you feel like a second-class citizen. The passage could lead you in astray. I recognize that in this passage, it's kind of troubling because Ezra, he tells them, and Nehemiah will do the same thing, tells them to divorce their pagan wives. And what, does that give me justification to divorce my non-Christian spouse? The answer is No. Christian uh, interpreters, ethicists, have all looked at this passage and universally concluded that this is something in the Bible that is, pre- is descriptive, not prescriptive. This is a very unique event in history. If you go back to the book of Malachi, it gives a little bit of context of what had happened. Malachi suggests that a large number of these Jewish men who married pagan women, they, in order to do so, they had to previously divorce their Jewish wives. And Malachi takes them to task for having done that. And so that doesn't answer all of our ethical conundrums. You don't need to hear very clearly that the New Testament does not urge you to, in fact, it forbids Christians divorce or non-Christian spouses. All you have to do is look at 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 through 13. God's word to you is keep loving your spouse with the love of Christ, keep praying for your spouse. There are so many examples through church history of a spouse coming to faith, and um, you'll pray for that and work toward that uh, until your dying day. My final point, I'll conclude with this. Character is key. Godly character trumps looks every single day of the week. It's a wonderful story told by the late Ravi Zacharias in one of his books of um, a friend of his whose, uh, whose father, he wasn't a Christian at the time, uh, but he, he was a, a devout Hindu man, Mr. Krishnan. He was a man of impeccable character, widely known for impeccable character. And yet he was, he was ugly. He was not a good-looking man at all, quite the opposite. And he had this high and shrill voice that was something of a joke among the young people who knew him and his family. Well, like many Indian men in those days, he, didn't, he never met his wife until their wedding day. Um, they, he never knew them until they or met her until they were married. And his wife, maybe it had to do with the way they, had the, they did the ceremonies, but his wife never actually got a good look at him on their, until they you know, got back to the house on the honeymoon, uh, never really even heard his voice afterwards. She's in the, in the, you know, at the honeymoon suite with him, and she looks at the guy, and she hears the guy, and she's like, oh, so disappointed. And here's what Ravi writes. When he saw the look on her face, he was silent. 
All he could bring himself to say was, I'm sorry. And after he gathered his thoughts, he told her, I can see why you have reacted as you have. I, I want you to know, you don't owe me anything. We have one bedroom and that will be yours. I will sleep in the veranda. And then he made her this promise. I will treat you with dignity and respect, he said, and do all for you that you ask of me. Mr. Krishnan had an important post in the government, um, but he never put on airs, airs. He was a genuinely humble man. Quote, day after day, his wife watched this man conduct himself honorably, and over time, his character won her over. She began to see him for the extraordinary human being he was, and ultimately, uh, the marriage worked. The, the story ends happily. Uh, Mr. Krishnan became a Christian believer later in his life. But just take the point. Take the point home with you. Even a lack of physical attraction can be overcome by character, and it often has been overcome by character. The, the, the needed personal compatibilities that we make a very big deal of, and the, ne- the needed sexual attraction and romance, which I get it, there, sh- there should be some of that normally, but we make such a big deal of it. It's in every one of the songs we listen to. It's every Disney show that we ever watch. It's, it's what the Western world says must be there in order to have a mar- uh, happy marriage. It's, no, we know it's not true. Character is what has to be there. Character will take you to the end. Character, like a deeply founded, mature, godly character in Christ, it's worth its weight in gold. Amen.